Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest is Ira Pastor. He's the CEO and co-founder at BioQuark.com. So, Ira, how are you doing? Wonderful, wonderful. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So tell me a little bit about BioQuark. What's the premise of the company? Um, the premise is uh, basically going back to nature uh, to sort of take a second look at sort of all of the wonderful organisms that inhabit this planet with us that are you know much further advanced than we are uh, when it comes to health and disease prevention um, and whether that be things like complex regeneration of the salamanders or the ability of certain you know worms to turn back cancer into normal tissue or even some of the species that uh, you know like to live forever or age very slowly uh, we think there's a lot to still be learned out there in the natural world and sort of create biologic solutions to, you know, a lot of these problems that sort of the last hundred years of, you know, the pharmaceutical industry and sort of, you know, why I, where I grew up uh, really haven't been able to answer for us yet. So uh, it's really about getting a little more creative this time around in the 21st century and, and solving some of these problems. So what what has this led to? Have you created products that uh, can mimic some of the functionality like limb regeneration of a salamander or, you know, what has this led you to, to make? Exactly. I mean, that's the path with, that we've been on. Uh, we you know, we talk about basically uh, an area called combinatorial biologics, where by the way we look at um, dynamics such as, uh, say, limb regeneration in the salamander, uh, and we figure out you know what's going on there in terms of all of the the biology, and you know it's a lot more complicated than just you know uh, taking a you know another little little pill from your local Rite Aid. But really understanding what happens when you know that limb gets bitten off, um, and then looking at sort of the combinations of bioactive substances that you know the salamander uses or is naturally present in the salamander, as an example, uh, to start the regeneration and repair process. And in doing so, uh, we can come up with sort of more innovative ways. Uh, to get things done. And so um, the interesting thing, um, you know, we spend a lot of time sort of looking at the uh, the chemistry or the proteins, the peptides and other substances that are involved in this process. And the really interesting thing, whether we're talking about regeneration or whether we're talking about all the situation where you don't want regeneration, but you want a sort of a reversion or a repair of some damage that's happened, um, it's really the same underlying process. Basically, these creatures have the amazing ability to, in essence, turn back time uh, in those cells to an earlier state before they were damaged or before they were gone or destroyed and start over the process of development. And this is really a unique finding and, and sort of what we leverage and what we create. So we are creating, as mentioned, these, these combinatorial biologic substances, which are going to, you know, they'll fall under the sort of the traditional regulatory path of biologics um, and, in our opinion, sort of have a, a more traditional development path um, and will probably be a little easier to get to market than some of the 
some more exotic stuff coming down the path in terms of gene editing and, and genetic engineering. So we're kind of uh, what's some uh, what's some specific things that you're working on? You, you working on a uh, sure. a drug to regrow limbs, or what? What specifically have you have you identified that you want to tackle? Since this is complicated. Yeah. So the, the major areas that we've been involved, you know, limb regeneration is a little bit further down the line, just due to the the complexity of that that situation. But we've been focused primarily in three areas. We're we're very active in studying neurology. Uh, specifically, both the sort of for central nervous system damage, traumatic brain injury, things like Alzheimer's disease, and simultaneously the spinal cord and how we can potentially reverse paralysis. Um, secondarily, cancer is a major interest of ours, just because the um, you know the last 50 years has been based on sort of this this kill centric approach of the oncology system, uh, but whereby you know we still lose eight million people a year. Um, but you know, when you, once again, you look at the natural world, how most of these species deal with cancer is not about killing tumors. It's about turning tumors back into, uh, normal tissue from whence they came, uh, which is a, a slightly different, you know, uh, thought process, but nonetheless, it, it, it's sort of evident all around us and how a lot of these species survive cancer. Um, and lastly, metabolic, uh, specifically, um, pancreas-related diabetes, and ultimately the trickle-down effects on the kidney. So those are three areas that we've been pretty active in in the lab in terms of uh, the models that we run um, and in terms of some of the sort of the early sort of uh, proof of principle work that we've been doing. Um, you know, obviously, you know, people will say that, you know, things like heart disease and cancer are bigger, probably the biggest killers out there, but probably number one, if you had to list something, would be our work in central nervous system just because, you know, the real... The really smart people will tell you that if uh, if you're not paying attention to sort of this wave of dementia and and, and Alzheimer's that's coming in the next 10 to 20 years, um, you're missing a big problem because that that's really what we're we as society are unprepared for. Um, and so you know we're not just interested in in the regeneration and how you rebuild nervous tissue and remodel the brain from oops, something like late stage Alzheimer's disease. But just all the changes that occur um, that lead you down that path, because you know Alzheimer's, as an example, you know it doesn't happen overnight. It's time so with the, I mean, you know, I mean, even with the three areas, I mean, they're tremendously expansive. There's many groups working on different aspects of them. So, which, which of these areas have you made headway in, and are you working with creating stem cells, or what's your mechanism that uh, you're hoping will, will get you a breakthrough in one of these areas? Yeah, the probably the most important for us right now, and the most advanced, and where we've gone is is in the spinal uh, cord regeneration. Um, we're not working with stem cells per se. We're our technology is all about um, how you basically create the body creates its own new stem cells uh, following the damage process, uh, and then constructs new tissue. So. Uh, it's not about, you know, putting more cells in, you know, that's sort of been the stem cell approach. But in our case, we just follow what normally goes on in spinal cord, you know, severing. Uh, and then how that process of not just creating new cells directly in the spinal cord, but also how you then stimulate them to form what should be there, which is new spinal tissue and has to be a certain size and structure and how it grows and how it knows when to stop. So that's all sort of the signaling components around the cells that we feel is sort of integral to the picture. So, you know, the spinal cord is an area that we've uh, spent a lot of time in the first several years in the lab with with various models, but now 
slowly but surely with some partners, primarily in Asia right now, we're beginning to get into the early stages of sort of tolerability and safety testing in the clinic. And I've seen some initial top line uh, evidence that we're on the right path. So that's that's primarily, probably first and foremost, our most important target. But ultimately, the learning from that uh, to basically how it applies to the whole central nervous system, whether it's the spinal cord or the, the higher brain, is really I'd say number one focus of ours uh, internally. Um, after that, things like Alzheimer's and then traumatic brain injuries are secondary. What are, what are some of the unique mechanisms that you've seen come from animals or from nature that you're trying to mimic? You know, whether you've done it or not. I mean, uh, right. what have you learned so far in your studies? Well, the most important thing, you know, basically, is this process of uh, turning back time and starting over. So. Um, whether it's salamanders or planarians or jellyfish or starfish or whatever, uh, they all, all these species have a really good ability to take that damaged tissue or that damaged, uh, component, uh, and the cells that remain alive, um, they start to spin them back in time and bring them back to an earlier stem cell-like, progenitor cell-like state. And so this is very important just to create sort of the new base for, uh, you know, where construction of new tissue is going to come from. Um, secondarily to that is the finding that uh, in addition to that mechanism or that sort of ability to induce pluripotent-like state uh, is the sort of a cleanup, the histolytic events, how you get rid of the, the dead stuff that's in the way, also how you dissolve extracellular matrix that you know would prevent new growth so that uh, the new sort of polarity, the new construction can occur properly. Um, and then lastly is the, and it's very interesting, and, and there's been a lot of this in the last 10 years or so, but basically how a lot of these species use their innate immune response uh, as part of the regenerative component. So, you know, when you get down to um, a lot of these organisms, they're, they're not like us. They don't have an adaptive immune response. They only have an innate one. Uh, and so uh, low levels of the innate immune system stimulated actually are pro-regenerative. So once again, you see, when you study these dynamics as they're occurring, you you see that they're very complex um, and they're not, you know, single magic bullet type approaches aren't going to get it done. So you really have to look at the whole process. Uh, and it's been you know, quite eye-opening um, in terms of, you know, sort of the complexity that's been created in throughout sort of the evolutionary process. And we, you know, unfortunately, people always ask, well, you know, how come we can't do this currently? You know, and, you know, one of the main limiting steps has just been the fact that, you know, over time, you know, we as humans develop uh, as bleeders. Um, and we, you know, we bleed very rapidly as a species and, and die very rapidly from loss of blood. So you know, we have been biased with a, with an excellent wound healing response. Uh, it's just pretty good at laying down scar tissue and not, uh, and not you know, regeneration. So we're trying to, in essence, reawaken or push the needle sort of more in that direction. Uh, with, well, with it seems like a, a unique capability of certain animals is they can do this in situ. They can create the stem cells and have all this happen inside the organism. And it seems like, I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, a knowledgeable scientist, but it seems like anything we do has to happen outside the body in the lab and then be reintroduced to the body. And we're not able to do it, you know, in situ, in vivo. Um, have you looked at that? Is there any clues there on how these animals are able to do that with selective tissue while keeping the rest of the body going and unaffected? Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, there is, there is one proxy 
in humans um, where sort of these abilities exist. And that is, you know, in the small window of time, um, you know, sort of prior to, to fertilization. So, you know, if you look at, you know, what happens at the point of a new embryo forming in, you know, in humans, you have sort of these three R events existing, right? You have a, a rejuvenation event whereby the embryonic age is turned back and rewound. You have a reversion event where the DNA is cleaned up, where organelles are remodeled. And then you have this generation, a regeneration event where the, the new embryo is supplied with this full, what we'll call a sort of morph, set of morphologic determinants that allow it to support it and bring it on its journey forward in time to, to form the, you know, the, the new fetus and, and so forth. So you know, there is one proxy in humans where we see all this existing in, in C2. Um, and that is, in essence, what we are trying to, to copy and mimic. So, um, unfortunately, we as humans only possess the ability in, in that one cell. Uh, as you pointed out, many of these other organisms is, is possess it in the trillions of cells that they're made up of. So that is, in essence, the concept of how we transfer the biologic information to get it done, as opposed to, as you mentioned, sort of ex vivo organ engineering, tissue engineering, which is itself an interesting discipline. And I'm not opposed to that by any means. I think it's a very interesting set of technologies, but we're kind of still uh, far from, you know, creating a, you know, giving you a new heart or a new set of kidneys just by producing it in a, you know, 3D printer. Um, Organ construction and things of this nature are dictated not just from the cells that you have, but also the whole sort of three-dimensional biological architecture that make you up um, and, and, and provide stimuli and clues and signals to how to form those organs inside. So um, that, that is, in essence, the, the right analogy. We are trying to induce so-called epimorphic regeneration internally as opposed to uh, trying to recapitulate it in a Petri dish or in a, in a 3D printer. Well, there are certain specialized cells, for instance, within the salamander that have this job um, or is it just uh, does it appear to be just literally local cells are changed and are turned into stem cells you know let's say I cut off a, you know a salamander's arm are the cells right near where the stump is are they doing this regeneration or is it somewhere else in the body and then they're migrating to that site uh, the, the majority of it uh, are the local cells that take on a new fate uh, a new fate to descriptions. In some species like planarians, where, you know, you can you know, chop off their head and the head grows back, um, there are resident stem cells that do a little more. Um, but in cases of, say, limb regeneration and salamanders, it's much more based on sort of the local population uh, that remain in the limb. Um, and there's nothing special about them, right? It's, it's, uh, it's you know, just like, you know, any cell in our, a cell in our foot, uh, technically, could be a brain cell. It was just in a different location in the embryo at the time. So they're very good at sort of, as I said, cleaning up what the history was and starting over based on the regional specification of what uh, should be there. So called sort of. You want to figure out, yeah. You want to figure out what is the signaling that suddenly changes them back to a, a you know a pluripotent or stem cellish state so that they can do this. Exactly. Um, you figure that yeah. out. You also figure out the appropriate sets of signals to say, you know, a foot goes here and not a, an eyeball, um, that's the key. That's really key to everything. Uh, and that's um, you know, that's what our goals are. 
have you gotten close? I mean, have you figured out what the signaling is or, you know, how oh, yeah, it, we uh, have, we have, we have quite, we have quite a bit of, we've done quite a bit of work in that area. Um, and, you know, once again, it's, um, uh, they're, they're complex mixtures of proteins, peptides, microRNAs, other biologic substances that represent sort of the, the information carriers in all of these tissues. Uh, we have spent most of our time, um, instead of trying to go specifically, we're made up of 210 different cell types. So in, in, as opposed to trying to figure out independently, you know, what goes on in, in your fingertip as opposed to your wrist and, and all those dynamics, we're much more interested in sort of the global uh, rewind and the, and the most important place uh, and where a lot of the work has been done before us on this, which would have led the path is in, in ooplasm or sort of the biologic milieu that's found within oocytes or eggs prior to fertilization because eggs um, contain it all, right? So basically uh, to support that new embryo, um, the embryo has to have the signals given to it. It has to have this sort of basket of you know, bioactive substances to tap into uh, to start its journey. Uh, the embryonic genome it isn't activated for a little while, and so the mother, the egg, mother cell, the egg supports it. So this is a very interesting proxy in humans because you know not just you know you have factors for nerve development and muscle development and bone development and so forth all in one place. So um, that is where we've been focusing most of our effort, um, as opposed to you know trying to break down every sort of different cell lineage in the body. Um, and, you know, a lot of these, what you find out, obviously, in, in, in many different tissues is there's substantial overlap between the proteins that do X, Y, and Z. You know, proteins are very exciting, but, you know, depending on their specific location and you know, spatial temporal configuration, they can do you know, many different functions. So that's why we're sort of, you can focus on sort of this universal uh, area of chloroplasm um, as a sort of catch-all for all sorts of possibilities. Hmm. Yeah, it's just odd that the, uh, you know, like when people, when someone gets a cut, you know, a human gets a cut, we recruit certain things to heal it and to scar it over, but we don't recruit things to regrow. But I guess it's uh, it's somewhat of a, well, I guess it's, actually it's not a similar mechanism. We're recruiting third parties to come in and heal a cut. And in a salamander, they're using the very cells themselves that are nearby to change and to regrow. So I guess it's a fundamentally different mechanism, right? Yeah, I mean, we... um you know, as I said, we, we have a great wound healing mechanism, uh, like you just mentioned. And it, the main thing that evolution and time have granted us is to, you know, the ability to stop bleeding pretty quickly. It's a very, we're very good at thrombosis. We're very good at fibrosis. Um, and that stops the blood flow. But you're right. It doesn't, uh, it biases against any type of regeneration. Now, keep in mind, we do have some vestiges of uh, regenerative process. I mean, we do have physiological turnover. So, you know, we can epithelial layer of the skin and gut and blood. Obviously, it turns over quite quickly. We do have a minor uh, regenerative uh, capability in the human liver, uh, but that is not you know, sort of true epimorphic regeneration. And, though, you know, if you, you know, God forbid you're stabbed in the liver or something, um, the remainder, the, the parts of the liver that remain alive will grow in size and number to take on additional function. So you gain function, but you don't get structure back. Uh, that's probably the most dramatic of, of all our regenerative capabilities. But when it comes to everything else, kidney, heart, spinal cord, eyeballs, brain, 
no, none of it's coming back uh, via sort of the current state of things until we until we can do more in terms of bridging this gap. Is there a point in asking why? Why is there a difference in how a salamander does it versus us? What do you think? You um, know why? Where does it not matter? Yeah, I mean, it's it, a lot of it has to do with the the, the circulatory system and the the fact that uh, um, salamanders and a lot of these low organisms don't die very easily from you know, loss of blood. Um, you know, there, there's, you know, there's, there's experiments that have been, you know, done back in the, the 60s and 70s where, you know, all sorts of stuff can be, you know, chopped out and pulled out of the side. They don't die. I mean, you can pull out a, experiments that were done in the 1970s at the University of Indiana, basically removing the brains of salamanders and, you know, they don't die. They go into sort of a catatonic state and the, but uh, it's not like us. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately, why evolution and natural selection move things in that direction, um, yeah, that, that's still a mystery for the times, but um, we are different. But the fascinating part is, even though we are different in that context, genetically, we're not that different. So that's still the exciting thing. And the fact that, you know, we do have layers of our genome that, you know, may be locked down uh, and silenced, but, you know, if we think creatively, there are ways to sort of reactivate some of those possibilities. Hmm. You're interesting. So you're focusing on, like you said, oocytes, egg cells, mm-hmm. and they contain, they can become anything. Well, yeah, I mean, they create, um, they create stem cells. So, you know, everyone's all excited about stem cells the last 20 years, but you know, oocytes are much more powerful. Um, they're, the, they're the sort of the true mother cell in the system that creates everything after it. Um, and, you know, not just do they create stem cells, but they, you know, they're very good at resetting age and doing all sorts of other wonderful things. Um, and, you know, it's why all our kids, you know, they're born age zero and they, you know, children, why babies are not born with diseases like Alzheimer's disease and so forth. So it's a wonderful reset of the one place in humanity and human, the human condition where all this stuff starts over. So it's a, um, it's a good place to start. The fact that, you know, and we openly admit, you know, we didn't pull the idea out of the air. We've been People have been studying rheoplasm and oocytes uh, since the 1950s when they were first used in the original cloning experiments. Um, so we've always known about the ability of them to turn back time and and start over. Um, and now it's just a matter of, you know, we're moving, we don't, we're not interested in cloning. We want to take that potential, that biochemical, biologic potential, and instead create drugs and create other biofactors that can be used for for these regenerative processes. It's weird if you think about it, you know, our cells are dividing all the time, but, you know, let's say you're 40, your cells are creating 40-year-old, not really 40-year-old cells, but cells that are essentially biologically 40 years old. You know, they're not young cells. It's strange that, you know, we do that, and the one time we create cells that are really their best, like you said, age zero is when the, you know, when the sperm and the egg combine, they're able to do that, or the egg specifically. It's just odd that uh, that all cells create cells their age except for those for oocytes, you know. Yeah, that's one of the uh, <laughs> that's one of the things that yeah we have not been naturally granted. Um, but yeah, as as you know, there are there are species out there that uh, age extremely slowly and exhibit so called you know negligible senescence, and, and there's a few that you know age in reverse. Um, so yeah, I mean there are <laughs> there are other models. Um, that sort of nature has played around with and you know, we can figure them out. We, uh, we can do a lot for the human situation. Well, how long have you been working on this? And, uh, you know, I mean, this problem is going to take 
a long time to solve if it ever gets solved. So, how, you know, what's what's a little bit of your background and why are you working on this and why is it important to you? Um, yeah, I mean, so I'm I, I worked uh, for the last 30 years in you know what would be described as the traditional pharmaceutical industry, um, and you know people always say, you know, why why did you get out of that and, and get into something like this and uh, I point out that, you know, as exciting and interesting as the, the pharmaceutical industry was, um, you know, generating a trillion dollars a year and all sorts of wonderful benefits and, you know, kind of cushy, cushy job, um, we weren't very good at, at solving any of these problems. We were very good at creating treatments for stuff and, you know, lowering your cholesterol and your blood pressure and, you know, raising your hormone levels and all this stuff. But, at the end of the day, we were having no impact on curing diseases. I point out, you know, you know, it's not that funny, but you know, the last, the last cure that the pharmaceutical industry really ever created was the antibiotics. That was a hundred years ago. So I wanted to do something a little different this time around, and you know, to do things a little outside the box, and the industry have to get a little more creative and and deal with technologies that may not be sort of little white pills and in bottles that uh, you get at Rite Aid. Um, and combine that with this, my love for sort of technology, comic books, science fiction. Uh, it was really a, a merger of sort of all of my interests. So um, that ultimately deposited me. <laughs> so what, what kind of, um, I mean, it's a general question, but what kind of surprises have you seen so far? Things that when you first went into this industry, you had expectations and maybe now they're different. I don't know. Maybe they're confirmed. Any surprises or things that you were like very, you thought was very unusual? Um, the, you know, the whole area of, uh, well, the whole area of seeing reversion events um, in our research in mammals where they don't normally occur. Um, and, you know, once again, not, um, you know, this is in all our work, but basically taking this a uh, basket of knowledge that um, has existed. And, you know, this this uh, gentleman, Dr. John Gurdon, just in 2012, got his, got the Nobel Prize for this research that he did in the 1960s on this whole same principle of turning back time with the oocytes and so forth. So the ability to see that transition um, into mammals from species that it only exists into ones that it doesn't, uh, especially in sort of our cancer work and some of the work we did with the um Sort of spinal cord injury and some of the brain brain injury models was quite eye opening, um, and you know told us we were on the right path. Uh, at the same time, and, and this is not unique for our business because I've you know experienced it throughout my the last thirty years in various parts of the industry. But um, the other surprising point is, to some extent, is you know how um, sort of resistant. Uh, the industry is to even in 2018 to anything that is kind of novel like this. Um, the industry still likes very traditional, what they call the single magic bullet type drugs, um, and so it's always very difficult to to convince partners that you know that's not the only way to do things. So it's still you know a little eye opening to me, even though I have a lot of experience in the industry that those attitudes still exist, but um, unfortunately, I think it's going to lead to a, you know, big pharma becoming a little smaller in the future because I don't think that they're going to be able to avoid um, having to get a little more creative themselves. They're just extremely large companies that aren't really creating anything new and um, are going to have to change with the times too. 
Well, all right. So last last couple of questions. What's uh, I mean, do you have a roadmap where you anticipate um, specific therapies actually coming into clinical trial stage? You know, where are you at with your your research, and what's going to happen over the next year or two? Do you think? Sure. So we have um, we have a plan within the next three years to have our first uh, clinical studies in the United States going on. Uh, that'll be specifically focusing uh, on. Uh, an orphan indication in the kidney, so for kidney regeneration related to our metabolic program, and that has to do with certain aspects of uh, fast tracking and, um, and and orphan status of uh, of di- certain diseases in the kidney, which is fine, um, with an estimate sort of registrational set of data within five years. Uh, however, uh, we're a U.S. company and we're very focused on the U.S., but at the same time, we are partnering with um, other groups uh, outside of the U.S. Uh, to to move this a little you know, forward a little further. And we've been doing some work in India and in the area of spinal cord injury, uh, beginning to get sort of phase one type um, tolerability and safety work. So slowly but surely, we are you know bringing the technology uh, forward uh, where it fits. And, and you know this is a you know, it's a unique era. It's not like back in the 1980s where companies only focused on the U.S. There's there's you know, 200 other countries out there with evolving regulatory systems. And whether it's things like, you know, conditional approval for regenerative medicines in Japan or some of the things they're doing in China right now with uh, special zone status, the world's changing a lot. So we have to be ourselves active uh, in many countries uh, with partners. So you know, the coming up few years is going to be, you know, a, a very interesting time for us in terms of the the basket of sort of clinical and human exposure that, that we'll be generating. Well, very good. So, Ira, what's the best way for people to learn more about uh, BioQuark and, you know, interact with you if they want to do that? Uh, the website is, is great, BioQuark.com. Um, come there, learn about our programs, our relationships, uh, things we have going on in the in the coming months, uh, and reach out. We're, we're, we're you know, we love talking about what we do. Um, we're excited about the future. And uh, anyone wants to ask us any questions, we're, we're, we're pretty much an open book. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And sorry that I grilled you to death, but uh, I was just curious. I wanted to get some specifics. Yeah, no, great question. Great question. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies, that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.